Uh, I grew up in church, so, I mean, naturally, I've got God all figured out. I know how it all works. I know exactly how the Bible works. I know exactly how God works. And, and I've got everything filed neatly into a system of God works with people and only people who dress this way. God only works through people who speak from this version of the Bible. God only shows up in a worship service if you sing from a certain book. We've got God very not nicely defined, don't we? Uh, here, here's what I've discovered, though. Just when I have everything figured out and I know how God works and uh, I've got everything categorized and organized, it seems like my life, at least, has been a 50-year journey of when I've got it all figured out, God shows up and throws me a curveball. He shows up and he does something I didn't expect. He's working in somebody's life that I didn't expect him to be working in. He does something fantastic that I can't explain. The Holy Spirit does something that didn't fit in my category. And it seems like God has been doing that to me for my whole journey. God is constantly confronting me with a situation that calls for me to shift my perspective. Uh, if you would, I need to keep zooming out and seeing a bigger picture, seeing it from a different vantage point, and, and growing with what God's doing. I, I remember I was in, we were in South America a few weeks ago uh, in Costa Rica teaching, and they were just so hung up on standards we couldn't get through to them. On, uh, and so I said, listen, you know, uh, it, it, according to your context, do Christian women wear nose rings? Because I was trying to talk to them in a way they could understand. Uh, the, the room erupted with Christians don't wear nose rings. And so I pulled up some pictures of our churches in India. And I said, do you see these hundreds of women? Every one of them have a ring in their nose. They're down on their faces praying before God, worshiping God. How can you say that? These are not Christian women, and how can you say that God does not approve of them? It's just a cultural issue that you're hung up on, and, and, and that's all it is. It's just a silly example, but God's constantly confronting us about our hang-ups and saying, zoom out a little bit. Let's get a new perspective. Uh, you know, often people are saying things to you, young people, like, well, you just don't understand, you're too young. Let me explain it a different way. Your perspective changes as you age. That's all they're really trying to say to you in a not very gentle way. That as you keep maturing, let me say it to you in a way that's real, like really clear. Once you have kids, it's like a total shift in your perspective. Once you get married, it's like a total shift in your perspective. Uh, there are some defining moments in life that once you, it's like climbing a mountain. It's like once you get up this high, it's like, oh, I, I get it now. I see things completely differently now. It makes more sense from up here than it did from down here. And I want to say this to people that have been saved a long time and to the more biologically mature people in the room. You've got to give people a little grace to grow up. We've got, we got, we got to be patient with people and let them... Let them through, uh, you know, uh, uh, self-revelation, let them through growing, experience some things, and then you don't have to lecture them. You don't have to say, well, when you grow up, you'll, you'll. They will grow up, and they will figure these things out, and we don't have to harumph everybody. 
what, what I want to say is that as I've been living my Christian faith, God keeps saying, Bobby, zoom out a little bit. Get, get a little bigger look. The kingdom of God is bigger than Fort Worth, Texas. Not all Christians are white males over 50 years old. Can we all agree on that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the gospel's more bigger than that. And so you can't say Christians are like this. Christians are like all kinds of things. Uh, Christians are all kinds of colors with all kinds of flavors and all kinds of cultures. And you say, well, a worship service is like, a worship service is like whatever the culture is the people are born again in. You, saw, you see all the, all the ladies up dancing at the worship service uh, we just showed you on the screen. That's uh, very common. Uh, we don't have a worship service in Asia without some dancing somewhere in the worship service. And you're like, gosh, why don't we do that? I don't know. Why don't we? I, I guess because it looked like the cotton-eyed Joe and we hadn't figured out how to put that to a good hymn. I don't know. I don't know why we don't. But other cultures, moving is very much a part of the worship. So now all I'm challenging you with is this. When, think, when you think you've got it all figured out, God's going to come at you with something and you're going to have to zoom out and get a bigger perspective to really grasp what God is doing. Because we as followers of Christ have a natural proclivity to put Jesus in a box, nicely defined categories, and he fits right into that part of our life. And we, we have set boundaries on God. And we've said, God, this is how you work, and these are the kind of people you deal with, and this is the only atmosphere the Holy Spirit can move in. And I mean, I was raised in a culture that said if you had drums, the Holy Spirit couldn't work in that atmosphere. And then I got on an airplane, flew to the jungle, and all they had was a drum made out of a wooden log with a piece of deer hide pulled around it. And they started beating that drum, and people started getting saved when we preached the gospel. And I began to ask myself, well, I thought the Holy Spirit couldn't work in an environment where there was a drum. You see my dilemma? Uh, and some of you were raised according to my same kind of kind of Baptist traditions. Anyway, let's don't beat that, that dog to death. But I'm just saying, I think we're the ones that are limiting what God's doing in our lives. If we would zoom out a little bit and have a little bit bigger perspective of God, you'd be in a much better place this morning. Don't, don't try to restrict God and say, God, you can only do, or God can only do this, or God can do whatever God wants to do. And God can use anybody he wants to use. And God will save whoever he sees fit to save. And that's kind of the way I, I'm beginning to see it more and more and more. The one thing I know for sure, that as soon as you try to pigeonhole God and categorize him, he will destroy your categories. He'll do something in your life that says, no, don't confine me. And he'll blow those categories up for you. When we are presented with God the way he really is when this happens in our life and god shows up and does something you're like well that was a god moment when he destroys your categories and you see him as he is you have to then readjust your understanding of god i want to just put this out there that for most of you uh your uh, christian faith has been a journey now i know you can get saved in a moment but you don't your maturity, your development as a Christian, your understanding has taken years for you to develop and understand. And the problem is, if you get mistaught some junk, it takes years to get rid of the baggage and, and get the good stuff in there. And that has been all of our common experience. This is what the disciples are dealing with. Now, they've got a Bible, but it's only, you know, the old part of the Bible, the Old Testament. That's their Bible. They've been reading the prophets, 
They know what the prophets say. They know the journey of Israel. They know the story of Israel. They have a very clear, but wrong, understanding of what Messiah is. They have a very clear, they think, they've got it all figured out from the Old Testament. But they totally are not on the same page with God as to what Messiah really means. And how God is going to become king of the earth once again. They totally are missing, missing this part of the story. So they're going through a process of discovery themselves. In other words, God has come down in the human form of a man. And Jesus is the human manifestation of God on planet earth. And God has shown up and he's beginning to work with them. And I know you're frustrated, and I'm frustrated, and we're reading the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're like, why didn't Jesus just rip back the curtain and say, God's here, you know, and just start, you know, being God in that way? Well, because you're not God, and I'm not God. And that's not the way God chose to do it. Now, I can tell you, this is my frustration a lot. I wish God would do things differently. And he and I talk about that. And I'm like, God, what are you doing? Why don't you just, and God's like, no, don't forget who's, I'm God. You're the creation. Let me do what I'm doing because I know what I'm doing. And you don't know what you're doing. So trust me, walk by faith. And so you may be frustrated reading the gospel, say, why does Jesus keep telling them, I really am God, but don't tell anybody. And this is the story that's running. I am the Messiah. Yes, I'm going to heal you, but on the down low, okay? Don't publicize this. Why? Because Jesus knew, knew us. He knew that if the word gets out about a miracle worker, then they're going to try to make him king by force. Likes, ads, follows, publicity campaign. It's going to sweep like a wildfire through Israel in a matter of weeks. And there's going to be a populist uprising against Rome. And they're going to try to install Jesus as king. And what do you think would happen? It'll be a bloodbath. Roman swords against Jewish zealots trying to make Jesus king and throw off Rome. That's not God's plan. That's not why Jesus came to be king, to have World War III with Rome. That's not what he's doing. God's doing something bigger, higher, He's doing something in Israel, but not just for Jews. Remember what people keep saying? We believe you are the king of the, what's that? World. King of the world. Not just the king of the Jews. King of the world. We believe you're the savior of the world. We believe you're a light to lighten the Gentiles and the hope of Israel. God's doing something big. He's doing it in Israel, but it's not just for Israel. Yeah, God's doing something. Let him play it out. The way that only God knows how to play it out. And you come along and enjoy. Now the disciples are going through all kinds of growth pains like you and I go through. Because they think God's like this. And then they meet Jesus. And then, then he does something they don't expect. And they just keep shifting their perspective continually during this three-year discipleship process that Jesus has them in. For example, they met Jesus down there at the Gal uh, baptism uh, in Jordan. And they supposed that Jesus was another of John's Galilean disciples. He's come to hear John the Baptist. And then all of a sudden, what does John do? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that I've been preaching about. 
and Jesus comes for baptism, well, the disciples have to shift their perspective. He's not just one of us. He's not just a Galilean disciple of John Baptist. And then they begin to think that he was a prophet because of the things he said and the things he knew and the way, the way he operated. They begin to look at Jesus and say, okay, he's a prophet. And then their perspective shifted again along the way. We've been on this journey for weeks now. Now they're starting to understand he's not just a prophet. He's that long-awaited Messiah that Moses spoke about. A prophet like me shall come, him you shall hear. He's that Messiah we keep reading about, the king that the prophets keep talking about shall come. He's the long-awaited king. Now they ran with that for quite a while, but Jesus keeps showing them some other things. And surely between this Sunday and next, you're going to see this come to pass now. Now they're starting to understand he's God. Now do you see how their thinking has shifted? He's a disciple. No, he's a prophet. You know, he might be the Messiah. You know what? He's, he's the king sent from God. Figure, you know what? He's God. He's God. Uh, and, and you're watching the disciples go through this constant shift in their understanding. And maybe you and I are learning right along with them. They're recording Jesus' message. What is he preaching about? The kingdom of God is alike. A sower who went forth. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, but yet it grows to be so big that it becomes like a tree and the fowls of the air come and make their lodging in its branch. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. They're going to arrest John the Baptist and they're going to imprison him and behead him. It's all happening between now and next Sunday. And during that time frame, Everybody's like, okay, are we really understanding what's happening? John's now been in prison. Jesus has taken up the message of John. What was John's message? The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus came forth after the temptation preaching the kingdom of God. What is it like? How does it grow? Who gets in the kingdom of God? John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes. He tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus. You won't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. John chapter number 3. Jesus is constantly talking about this kingdom that he's setting up. This kingdom that he is now ruling over. His kingdom may only be entered if you receive the king. You bow the knee and you receive King Jesus as your king. And you, let me say it this way, Christian faith, Christian belief rests on a proper understanding of who Jesus is. If you don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, you're outside the Christian faith. Because salvation, your salvation hinges on getting at least this one thing, that Jesus is God, who's come down to be your substitute, to be your Savior, but not just your Savior, your King, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he's 100% in charge. Uh, we are operating in a broken model of Christianity where we have pigeonholed Jesus to Savior. He came to save me. He came so that I could be forgiven of my sins. That's only a partial truth. He came to be king, and he becomes king in God's plan, not through likes and shares and, and, and posts, not through a populist uprising. He becomes king through a cross and an empty tomb and a resurrection. That's how he becomes king. 
and that's also how you get saved. That's how your sins get forgiven. It's actually a byproduct of what God's doing to send his uh, son, Jesus, to become king of the world. So, uh, let me see if I can fast forward very quickly here. Now, Jesus has presented himself to disciples in several different ways. Their thinking is shifting, and he's reinforcing his teaching, his claim to be God's king, by doing things that only God can do. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to claim to be God, or claim to be God's representative on earth, then you would be able to do some things that only God could be attributed to, to God. And that's exactly the stories that you've been seeing. Remember last week, Jesus puts the disciples in the boat and says, you guys head across the sea, I'll join you later. He goes up, dismisses the feeding of the multitude, feeding of the 5,000, but really feeding of the multitude, prays for a while, a storm comes up, and he comes walking to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Let me say it to you this way. We know that God has power over creation, right? Now Jesus is showing you that he has power over creation. What conclusion are you supposed to draw? God has power over creation. Jesus has power over creation. Conclusion, Jesus is God. And that's exactly the way the writers have designed this. So you will come to that conclusion. See, Jesus is standing where only God can stand on the waves of the sea. He's saying to the winds and the waves, things only God can say, peace be still. He's uttering utterances and claiming titles that only God can claim. And everybody knew these two words, I am. Moses falls at the burning bush, sandalless before God and says, who are you? You say, I am that I am. You tell them the I am has sent you. It's one of the great names for God in the Old Testament. So when Jesus shows up, and especially in the book of John, when you're reading through there, when he says, it's me, don't be afraid, what's really being said in the Greek language is, I am. The I am is here. There's no need for fear in the presence of the I am. I've got you. I am. I am sufficient for all of your needs. I am the creator, I am the life, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, and you can enter into heaven with a relationship with God through me, and I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And this I am that Jesus keeps uttering means he's saying what only God can say. Only God can claim to be I am. Now a man's claiming it. A man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and, and we all know his parents, and now he's saying it, and everybody's scratching their heads saying, wait, is not this the carpenter's son? What's going on here? Zoom out, zoom out, shift perspective. What's happening? God keeps destroying. Shouldn't a savior come from Bethlehem? Shouldn't he be David's seed? Shouldn't he be a king? Shouldn't he? Everything they categorized God in a box, God's blowing their categories up. And their heads are spinning because Jesus is saying, no, no, it's me. It's really me. It's really God talking to you. I am in control. And now the disciples, it's like, like, like they, they mash the gas too fast on a rainy day and the tires are slipping. And, and they'll spin for a few seconds. And eventually they'll grab traction and shoot forward. You know what I'm saying? And the disciples are in spinning mode right now. But the tires are starting to heat the pavement up. And they're about to get some gription right here. And they're about to launch forward with a ding. Wait a second. You are God. 
and Jesus is going to have a twinkle in his eye when they figure it all out. They're making adjustments to their understanding. Let, let me read John chapter 6 right now, verse 66. We know this is the message they're trying to tell us because we have their own words right here. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. We ended here last week. Jesus said, do you want to leave me too? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Watch Peter's confession now. Verse 69, we have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. The tires are getting some traction now. Now the miracles, I told you this phase of Jesus' ministry consists of a lot of teaching and parables and a lot of miracle manifestations, okay? And that's the Galilean ministry. Maybe next week or the next we shift to the journey, final journey to Jerusalem as we get ready for Easter. But these things that are being recorded, the miracles in particular, are being recorded by John and the gospel writers with the intention that you will read this and come to the conclusion, only God could do that. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. Only God could say that. Only God can stand there. Only God can do this. And the more times you catch yourself saying that and believing that, let me show you John's conclusion. John chapter number 20. We don't have to guess. We know why they wrote. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which means, as fantastic as the Gospels are, they could have written a dozen more books just like this. Not everything was recorded. Only the essentials to get you from A to Z in your faith and your belief. And we know that's the goal because they tell us that's the goal. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. The ones that are recorded are written here. Why? So that you may, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So now you see that these gospel writers are telling a story that's moving in a direction. They're writing things so that you will believe and come to the right conclusions by the time you have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story that you had last week with Jesus walking on the sea and feeding the multitude, feeding the 5,000 plus, was to show you that God has power over creation. Now, the stories didn't have chapters and verses when they were originally written. It was meant to be written as a collective. So I'm pushing the stories together so you'll recollectivize it in your understanding. The story moves from God walking on the sea. Look at him have power over creation. Only God can stand there. Only God can say that. Only God can command the waves. Now the story moves forward, and it's going to show you that God has, Jesus has power over demons. Very troubling set of scriptures right here. Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 5, verses 1 and 2. Then went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. When you read the Gospels, one thing that's going to strike you as a Bible student is that as you're reading the story of, of Jesus, Jesus is constantly confronted with this outpouring of demonic activity. Have you noticed that? I mean, the first disciple is a woman, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. I mean, it's like every time Jesus turns a corner, it's like this demonic activity. He's baptized, 
led up in the spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God to the wilderness for a few days, and there Satan comes and begins to tempt him. It's like at every turn of the page there is this force of darkness, this evil demonic beings rushing out to confront Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, I'm not saying you are, but if you are, then you have a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions. We've got questions like this. Is the demonic activity normative for followers of Christ? In other words, what I'm reading about Jesus, should I make that normative for me? In other words, every day should I get up with the expectation that I'm going to be confronted by demon-possessed people and, and thousands of demons and, and, and temptations of Satan? Am I going to be assaulted every day of my life by a similar amount of demonic activity? That's a question you should have. And later, maybe I'll answer it for you. Why are there so many demon-possessed people in the first century Israel? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You're like, listen, I get up, go to school, I go to work, I, I go to my, do, do, you know, Target and you know, TJ Maxx and the Starbucks, and I'm working through the community here, and I'm never confronted with demon-possessed people foaming at the mouth and breaking change and running naked through the parking lot at Target. I've never gone to Target and seen a naked man chained to a light pole, foaming at the mouth and terrorizing people who are trying to put their shopping carts in the little thing, you know. I've never seen that. Never seen that. So what are we to make of this? Why is there so much demon activity in first century Israel? It's a good question. It's a good question. Glad you thought about it. Also, are, are, we, are we facing an onslaught of demon activity? And maybe we've just been oblivious to it. That's a good question, too. Maybe we should have a whole sermon about this. I don't know. But this is what's happening with the ministry of Jesus. At every turn of the corner, here's some onslaught by the forces of darkness. I think it's best to answer all, all of those questions in a way that understands that although Israel doesn't know who Jesus is, Israel, the people of Israel, do not really understand who Jesus is, the demonic powers moving in Israel know who Jesus is. Now, you may not know the answer to the other four questions I asked, but this one's clear. The people are not getting, I mean, the disciples now are starting to get it, but the broad populace is not getting who Jesus really is. They think he's a king, politician, let's go put him on a throne and, and run him for, you know, running for president or whatever. He's going to be our party leader. That's not what God wants to do. So Jesus keeps running away from that and withdrawing from the people so they don't do that. And But everywhere he goes, here's this demonic activity. The people don't seem to recognize God, but the demons sure do. Now that's very clear, and you're going to see it here in this story. The demons have no eye, no no struggle identifying the son of god they're rushing out from every dark stronghold to confront jesus christ they they they've, the demons working in israel and the surrounding samaria and the surrounding region the decapolis the, the demons are working in people's lives and they've brought the humans and they've both brought the creation under their power and the demonic forces are pouring out of these people pouring out from these dark strongholds to confront jesus christ why are you in our territory jesus what are you doing here 
this doesn't seem, the, the timing's not right. What are, what are you doing? Why are you in our territory? Have you come to challenge us before the time? The, deem, the demons, the, 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 the satanic powers are destroying creation. If you don't get anything else, get this. What God created, living images of God, Satan has been systematically destroying. What God created, a beautiful and good planet, Satan has been systematically reconfiguring. Now it's a place of tornadoes and thorns and tidal waves and, and volcanoes and tsunamis and viruses and plagues. And you say, what's going on with the world? That's what's going on. Sin and destruction and demonic forces have taken God's beautiful things and have begun to distort them, to, to, to reimagine them, to reconfigure them. Even the humans, which should have been the image of God, the demons have got into the people now. And the people are disfigured. They are distorted. Their, their, their lives are in bondage. They are under the bondage of these demonic powers and they're uncontrollable you're about to see you say well go get some ropes ha is the answer to that you say well go get a big chain ha is the answer to that you're going to see it in the story these uh, demonic uh, filled people are distorted and disfigured their lives are not right this is not what god intended you say what's happening the dark forces are trying to destroy everything that god made beautiful and good same things going on with the people as it is with the planet you know one of the christmas songs we sing about G you know, that, that jesus came to stamp god's image on the human face stamp thine image in its place that's exactly what the demonic forces have done as they have taken humanity and, and planet earth and they are stamping their grotesque demonic image upon the lives of the humans. And the humans are writhing and foaming and uncontrollable and wild. And they are terrorizing other humans. So when Jesus comes into a territory marked as a demonic stronghold, there's going to be a confrontation between the forces of light and darkness. Now I'll read you the story. You get it. Mark 5, 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs. Now that's where you already know things are wrong. If you live in a cemetery, that's just your abode. Something's already twisted, okay? If you, if you enjoy the, the being surrounded by death and decay, uh, uh, something's wrong. This is not the image of God stamped upon you. Death is not natural. You were not designed for death. You were designed for life. Sin brought us death. Oh, the, the de demons are just thrilled living here among death and inhabiting the man and taking him down to the cemetery. And, and he lives there. Verse 3, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Can we all agree without me having to go into a lot of details? There's one bad dude. And Satan, uh, demons have filled his life. And his head turns around. He vomits green pea soup. And he can rip chains apart and, and jump over Bill. He's a, it's a freak show. Okay? 
and it's in, it, it, Satan has got him. Okay, the demons have him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out. Can you imagine me sitting on your back porch, having something to drink and enjoying the sunset, and out in the distance you hear, you just wild shrieking and crying and, and, and the sounds, not, not, not of crickets and, 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 and songbirds, but of demon-tormented soul running naked through the hills behind your house. You let the kids play in the backyard? You don't let the kids go to the park by themselves? They have to walk past the cemetery to get to school. You don't let them walk to school by themselves? This man is terrorizing the community, but really it's the demons terrorizing the humans through this man. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, the man ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. When I read that in my study time, I was like, Peter can't figure it out, but the demons got it figured out. You know what I'm saying? The Israel can't see who he is, but the demons can see who he is. What, what are you doing here? Why are you in our territory, son of God? What, what are you doing here? In God's name, don't torture me. Isn't this crazy talk now? For Jesus had said to him already, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked the impure spirit, speaking through the man's voice, What is your name? And the impure spirit begins to speak, my name is Legion, but we are many. You know what I'm saying? That kind of thing is happening. My name is Legion, for we are many. Can I just tell you what a legion is? The famous Legio X, 10th Roman Legion. The famous Navy Seals of Rome. The ones that eventually will destroy Rome and set up camp inside the city walls. 6,000 men, Legion. Legion could be as small as four or five. Sometimes they got up to, to 10 in a, in a big recruitment thing, but 6,000 soldiers, legion. There's a voice coming out of this man and said, there's 6,000 of us demons packed inside this dude's body. Now, you'll have to figure out what a, how big a demon is and how that works. I, I can't explain it right now. But there's thousands of demons inside this man. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Satan had a stronghold. Darkness had a stronghold in a region. You say, this is weird. Yeah, it is weird for we who live in America. And there's a big difference in living in America and living in other places. We have traveled on our mission journeys into places where Satan had a stronghold. And you knew it when you stepped in. Now, I don't have time to explain all that. You knew it when you stepped in. You could feel the resistance. You could feel the oppression. By nightfall, they'd be throwing stones at you. Uh, you'd be creeped out. Uh, you, 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 your hair on the back of your neck will stand up, and you'll get goose flesh, and you'll know something is not right in Dodge here. And you'll be saying, okay, we either make a stand or we move on. It's a very strange feeling. The demons have a stronghold. We are on the east, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, Going further east, the cities, ten cities, are not Jewish. The ten cities are Gentile. They are Greek cities built in the time of Alexander the Great. 
and there's a big Gentile population in this region. The demons say, we've got a stronghold here. Do not send us out of this area, Jesus. Verse 11. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. They are not Jews, you understand. They are not Jews. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs and the herd, about 2,000 in number. Oh, good, so each pig got about three demons. You say, what in the world? I know, it's one of the strangest passages in the Bible. Why did they need another body to go into? This will keep you up at night. Don't, don't overthink it, okay? They wanted another warm, wet body to go into. They did not want to be cast out into the dry place. And when they got into the pigs, the pigs went suicidal. The demons destroy everything. They disfigure creation and humanity. If you ever look at creation and humanity and say, this doesn't make any sense. Creation's killing itself. The humans are, are disfigured. Yeah, sin at work. Powers of darkness at work on humanity. And this has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. It explains a whole lot about the condition planet Earth is in and the condition that humanity is in at this hour. He cast the demons into the pigs, verse 13. Uh, he gave them permission, and the herd of 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Now, again, I've, I've got more questions than I have answers for you, and I don't want to keep you up at night. So the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs committed suicide. Where are the demons now? You ever thought about that? So our kids are all swimming on the bank over there on the Sea of Galilee. Now what? I mean, there's just creepy implications all over this story. You know what I'm saying? Where do the demons go once they went into the water? If I go to St. Martin, am I going to get demons? I mean, you, you should, Jeff says yes. I don't know. You need to think about this. I don't think you're going to get them because I think God's Holy Spirit's got control of you. But So you just, let's all go to the beach and be fearless, okay? Uh, all I'm saying is it's a, it's a whole lot of interesting stuff happening here. The people tending the pigs, verse 14, ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. This is so strange. Verse 17. Then the people begin to plead with Jesus to leave. Uh, that'll keep me up at night right there. God shows up to free us from the powers of darkness. And when God shows up and doesn't fit into our box, they say, can you just leave? Because you're not fitting into our box. God shows up and does something and reveals something that challenges us. And makes us rethink some things. And instead of believing on him, the other reaction is this. Jesus, will you just go away? Why? Because I've got a job. My kids are healthy. Things are going fine. And I don't want to rethink anything. Just go away and leave me alone to the nice life I've made for myself. Jesus showed up in a stronghold of demonic activity to set people free. What was their response? Well, one man's going to become a disciple, and a bunch of people are going to say, can you just get out of this? 
we were not long ago standing and making disciples in a foreign country, and we were invited to leave. And they stood up and told us, you have presented something that's not in our box. Can you please just leave? Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He's like, would you get me a boat with Jesus? Jesus is like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going with you. I'm not staying in this demon-infested place. It's not safe to live here. Or he might have said, I mean, be creative. He might have said, are you kidding? How can I stay here? Everybody's watched me run naked for 40 years through the city. I'm the most embarrassed guy in the world to go back and, and, and talk to them about li living a good and wholesome life. Now, isn't really this your robe, too? You're like, well, the people I grew up with know me, and I can't go back and tell them about Jesus because, you know, we, you know, you know. Yeah, I know. And Jesus knows. And the dude's trying to get in the boat with Jesus and go with Jesus, but watch what Jesus did. Jesus, verse 19, Jesus did not let him but said to the man, go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and that the Lord has had mercy on you. No, you're not going with us. I commission you as a missionary to the Gadarenes right now, to the Decapolis. You go to the ten cities and become a disciple maker for Jesus Christ and you tell them, you guys all know me. I mean, you've seen it all. <laughs> you know, I was a crazy guy terrorizing the city. Listen, when they found the man, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Somebody tell me what that means. He was tired? No, that's where disciples sit. That's where Mary sat and Martha criticized her. That's where disciples sit, at the feet of Jesus. The man is now a disciple. That's the implications from the text. When Mark, a disciple, and, and, and John and Matthew, when these guys are saying, sitting at Jesus' feet, that always means something. It means disciples, real followers of Christ. Jesus says to the man, no, you're not coming with me. You're going on mission now. Now it's time for you to engage. And you go tell the ten cities of the Gentiles how God's had mercy on you. They're not going to believe when they see you. Nice haircut and nice clothes and speaking proper and, and being polite and being kind and being civil. People are going to be scared of you, but you tell them God has transformed your life. And I'm going to use a word right here. When they saw the man, they saw a transfigured man. And I'm going to use that word because it's going to come up next week. Jesus is going to be transfigured. The man was one way, and now he's completely something else. He's been transformed. Now, let me wrap this story really quickly. Jesus is recognized by the demons as the son of the Most High. Jesus has power over thousands and thousands of these dark demonic beings and he commands them and they obey his commands and they leave the man. Jesus is saying what only God can say. Now that's what the disciples are seeing. This man commands even the demons and the devils and they obey him. Now the Pharisees are going to see that later and they're going to say, well, he is a devil and that's why he can do that. And Jesus is going to say, come on, man. Come on, that's not right. They're saying, Jesus is saying what only God can say. And now everyone sees a man transfigured, a life transformed by the power of God. The story, story's going to take one more shift. Are you ready? 
One more shift. The stories are meant to go together. Not only does Jesus have power over the demons, now Mark is going to tell you that Jesus has power over sickness. Let's go quickly. Mark 5, 21. Keep the story going. While Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came out. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, Jesus, my little daughter is dying. She's only 12 years old. It's my only daughter. Jesus, my baby girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and she will live. Now I want you to get the scene. They've come across the sea again. Boat. They land on the shore. Thousands of people are swarming Jesus. And in these big crowds of people, Jesus is singling out two people who have real needs, who are by faith reaching out to him for uh, help with a hopeless and desperate situation. One of these was Jairus. His daughter's about to die. Her life is in grave danger. And nothing in all of Scripture can be more touching than this man throwing himself down in the middle of the street at Jesus' feet and with hot tears running down his cheeks begged Jesus for the life of his little girl. Jesus, my daughter, my only daughter, she's just 12 years old. She is near death. Please come right now. I, I believe in you. I believe you are who you're showing us who you are. Come right now and heal my daughter. Verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and the crowd just pressed in. A large crowd of people just surrounded Jesus. There's thousands of people. I think you guys know a little bit about this because in this vast metroplex where you live, you're so accustomed to the crowds that it, it's just background noise to you now. You move up and down these uh, broken streets and highways every day, surrounded in your schools, the, some of the biggest schools in America that you're attending, some of the biggest universities in America that you're attending, thousands and tens of thousands of people surrounding you. I want to remind you this morning, it is in these massive crowds that you live in that there are people who need Jesus Christ. Hurting people, people without hope, desperate people, thirsty people, hungry people, people who need Jesus. You say, I don't know who to deal with. It'll become obvious. Don't try to deal with the thousands. Try to find one. Because it seems when Jesus enters the multitude, there's one or two, and he's going to go right to them and deal with them because they're people who have faith and they're trying to reach out by faith and Jesus sees that moment as they're trying to reach to him and he just gravitates right to them. Probably here in this room there are people who are hurting. There are people who are sometimes hopeless. There are some desperate persons among us. What we know is time is running out for the little girl. But as soon as Jesus agrees to go, another person approaches. 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent her whole life savings, all that she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, in your mind, I want you to paint a picture. There's this crowd of brightly dressed people, uh, a big crowd, lots of noise, lots of excitement, lots of energy. And I want you to see one woman, weak, thin, emaciated, 
I want you to see this woman pale as death. I want you to see all these people with healthy uh, pink and tan and brown faces. I want you to see this woman with pale, pale ashen complexion, just trying to make her way, stumbling through the crowd, making a beeline for Jesus Christ. You can tell by looking at her that she is not well. She has the look of wasting, uh, wasted with anemia. Uh, the very delicate way to put this is she's had a 12-year cycle. Yeah, you can only imagine the physical weakness, the frustration. To be on the cycle is to be completely unclean in Jewish society. You stay home, you don't touch anybody, you don't sit on the couch. You don't mix with society. You're completely isolated. You can't worship in public. You are unclean. 12-year cycle. For 12 years, she has been an outcast. For 12 years, she has been wasting away physically and wasting away emotionally and mentally. And now I think I can just see in my mind she's just at the end. She's just ready to throw in the towel and say, just, it's, it's over. I can't live this way anymore. And with one last push of energy, she says, if I can just get to Jesus. Now, you might decry her actions. I'm sure many would have if they had known what was happening in that moment. She ought not to be here. This woman is unclean. By her mere touch, moving to the crowd, she pollutes all of us. We condemn her. You go back home and suffer. You're not allowed to be here in public. If you want to blame her further, you can, you can blame her for this too. If you want to be a, a Pharisaical, you can say, well, rather than coming to ask Jesus for something, she's coming to steal it. She's coming to take something selfishly for herself. She's not going to ask anybody. She's going to sneak up and just kind of take healing, if you would. She, she, yeah, you, you could make her out to be a bad person, but the Bible doesn't make her out to be a bad person. Jesus doesn't make her out to be a bad person. Her faith was not clouded by the baggage of religion. Her faith was not clouded by custom and circumstance. She had faith that this man, Jesus, was who he claimed to be. And if I can just touch the hem, I, I, don't, I don't need him to put his hand on my forehead. I don't need a speech. I'm thinking if he's really who he says he is, and I believe that he is, if I could just touch the fringe, the tassels hanging from his prayer shawl, if I could just touch the, I think the English Bible say, the hem of his garment. If I could just make a contact, I believe that he would heal me. I've heard about this man. He loves people like me who are outcasts. In India, we call them Dalit, untouchables. Poorest of the poor, the unclean, you do not mix with them. She's Dalit. So let's read. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him and he turned around. Now think of thousands of people. He turned around and he said, who touched me? Who just touched my clothes? Of course, the disciples are rolling their eyes right now. They're like, oh gosh, here we go again, another one of these weird moments. What do you mean, who touched your clothes, Jesus? There's just about 10,000 people here. Can you imagine being at a concert and saying, who touched me? Can you imagine being at a parade or 
Can you imagine running through a 5K and saying, hey, who touched me? We're going to stop this race until I figure out who, who. I mean, they're in a massive crowd of people. I, in my mind, I've got like New Year's Day in Times Square. You know, just bodies. And Jesus, then it's moving. And then all of a sudden it stops, the whole procession. And Jesus is like, okay, who touched me? Who just touched my clothes? The disciples are incredulous and they're like, oh, good night. What do you mean who touched us? But look at verse 32. But 